Welcome to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. When all else fails, file a lawsuit. In most instances, our tendency in the United States to resort immediately to legal action is rightly seen as the reason why it is so difficult to get things done. In fewer areas is this more apparent than in residential development in California, where builders must contend with the constant threat of litigation and not always in good faith. See, for example, lawsuits brought under the California Environmental Quality Act, as discussed in Season 2 of this podcast. Yet recently, there may be reason to believe that California's litigious nature may become a force for progress rather than a roadblock. Dylan Casey is the executive director of the California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund. He joins me today to discuss how recently enacted state laws have enabled legal advocacy organizations like his to compel cities through legal action to permit new housing in California. Stay tuned. Dylan Casey, welcome to City Speak. Hi, thank you. I know that before you became the executive director of Carla, you were a land use lawyer for New York City's government. And I can't help but feel that there's some amount of irony to the fact that you went from working for a municipal government to suing municipal governments. Can you share more about what you did for the city of New York and how you ultimately transitioned to your current role? as head of an organization that many local governments, perhaps like New York City, now fear? Sure. I think going all the way back, actually, I started out in law school interested in environmental law and took a course in land use law and got really interested in how important land use policy was toward a lot of different environmental issues, especially climate change. And that's what led me down the path of local government. And in New York City, I started out in the Department of City Planning in their general counsel's office, which was more technical legal work. But I think what led me to Carla more, aside from just wanting to move to California, was my work at the city council. And there I was a lawyer for the land use committee and worked on almost every development project and rezoning and lots of other things that required city council approval. And I think... I saw a bit of how broken our land use process is in that experience and how it led to specifically outcomes on housing that were really hurting our housing availability in our big cities. I would sit in front of a crowd of people waiting to testify at public hearings for hours and hours and hours on end and listen to the types of people that showed up, whether they be unions, homeowners who are opposed to housing, or a variety of other people, activist groups. And really, I felt like the voices who were missing were the ones that were trying to push housing production up. And in my mind, that was the key solution to making housing more affordable throughout the city. And I don't want to like shortchange them. There were some people there doing that, but really those voices were lacking in those hearings. And those hearings really shaped a lot of the decisions that were made by the politicians. So I always wanted to move out to California. And the opportunity to work at Carla was kind of a dream job for me because 
it was a chance to use the law to push back on that dynamic in local government where local decisions are being shaped in ways that really are harming housing affordability. There are several, as I understand it, state-level laws that enable Carla's work. But there is one law that you've highlighted as having unleashed the greatest number of lawsuits that Carla has brought, and that is the Housing Accountability Act in California. Before I have you discuss a representative lawsuit that you've worked on, would you give us a bit of background on this law when it was passed, and what its aim has been? Sure. I think we do work in other areas of state law, but you're right, the Housing Accountability Act is the sort of primary way we can shape local government decisions on specific housing developments. And to understand it, it's probably worth stepping back for a second. And using New York as an example, in New York City, if you comply with all the zoning, if you propose a housing development, that complies with all the zoning rules. All you do is submit your plans to the Department of Buildings and you get a building permit. It's what we call uh, as-of-right development or by-right development. New York has a lot of other problems where it's very hard to comply with all the rules and often make that as a constraint on development. But in California, that's not how it works almost anywhere. Even if you comply with all the rules and you propose a housing development, the development is subject to potentially endless series of public hearings at the planning commissions and council. And the city has discretion to deny the project, even though you comply with everything. So the Housing Accountability Act is designed to really tamp down on that discretion. What it says is that if you comply with all the rules with your housing development, the city should not deny that project absent a clear impact on public health and safety that can't be mitigated. So if a city in California is considering a housing development and it gets controversial, you have a bunch of neighbors show up to the public hearing complaining about the density or the height, that should not be a reason to deny the project as long as it complies with zoning. That's often not how it works in practice, which is why Carla has a lot of lawsuits and a lot of potential lawsuits, but that's kind of the main idea behind the HAA. The other sort of slightly more nuanced point is that the HAA defines compliant as complying with the city's objective standards. And these objective standards mean that they're standards that can be applied uniformly no matter who is looking at them. They're not subject to individual discretion or individual judgment. And what this does is it throws out a lot of things that cities use to deny projects sometimes. Cities have things like design review that are based on a lot of the judgments of city staff or the city planning commission. And while they can still use those, the HAA says that they can't use those to deny a project or reduce its density. So it sort of guarantees you or should guarantee you the baseline density allowed in zoning and limit cities' ability to deny projects that comply with that. So now that we know how the underlying main statute works, I'd like to dive into a representative lawsuit. Since its founding, Carla has brought numerous lawsuits against cities for failing to comply with state housing laws, like notably the HAA, the Housing Accountability Act. 
Can you take us through one of these lawsuits step by step from identifying noncompliance to the actual litigation and then finally to the outcome, whether it be a final judgment or settlement? I think our most recent lawsuit is probably a good one to go through. That that was our lawsuit in Huntington Beach. It involves many steps along the way. So I'll try and boil it down to just the important ones. Basically, what it was is it's a roughly 50-unit condo development in an area of Huntington Beach that was identified for high-density housing development. California law sort of forces cities to plan for increased density through a process we call the housing element. So Huntington Beach had identified this area for that and established special rules to allow for high-density development. And this development was proposed in that area, applying with those rules. And I think it included a few below market rate units as well. We learned through some local UMBs that the development was going to be controversial. Huntington Beach is not the most friendly city to housing, not the most friendly city to state law in general. So we started tracking this project right after it was denied by the planning commission. We watched the planning commission hearing, saw that it was denied, got in touch with the developer to see if they were going to appeal the project further. And they appealed to the city council, at which point we submitted a letter and testified on behalf of the organization, basically informing the city that they needed to comply with the Housing Accountability Act. And they couldn't deny the project without identifying some significant health and safety impacts. The city council basically ignored us and denied the project. When it became clear, we we contacted the city attorney and told them we intended to sue. And the city attorney asked us if the city council could rehear the project or reconsider their decision. And that was a little risky for us because we felt like we had a good lawsuit already, but we thought we'd give the city a chance to correct their actions. And as it turned out, they didn't. Instead, they sort of tried to make up a rationale for their decision after the fact. They hired a couple of experts and produced expert reports that reported to identify health and safety impact in order to justify the denial. And all that health and safety impact really was, was that the experts said that the project would generate some level of traffic and that that traffic would cause some number of undetermined accidents as a result. And those accidents would endanger public health and safety. So it's basically an impact that any project that has parking would generate. So clearly, we didn't view that as a sufficient reason to deny the project. We filed a lawsuit at that point. I think that was around February of 2020. So that lawsuit was delayed quite a bit due to COVID, the court shutting down. But eventually, we filed our briefs, the city filed their briefs, and we get to a hearing in front of the judge. The judge was completely silent all the way through the hearing. had no idea which side they were going to side with. And a few months later, we got a decision against us that really ignored a lot of the provisions of the HAA. The judge decided that really just deferred to the city's judgment in what constituted a health and safety impact when the HAA says exactly the opposite. And we were preparing to appeal when we got a new court decision in our other case, San Mateo, 
that clarified a lot of those very points that the judge decided on about the presumptions against the city or in favor of housing. After that came down, the Huntington Beach judge agreed to reconsider the case and ended up issuing an opinion in our favor. So that was a few months ago now, and we expect the city will be appealing that decision. So we'll still end up in the Court of Appeals, but it's a much better position to be in when you're defending a decision in your favor than when you're challenging a decision to win against. What I find interesting about that anecdote is that the statute, the HAA, is ostensibly designed to constrain discretion on the part of cities in denying local developments. What your anecdote illustrates is that, in fact, until the, I believe you said the San Mateo decision, there actually needed to also be a constraint on the discretion of the courts to decide what constitutes a health and safety impact in giving deference to cities to make these kinds of local decisions. Do you see that as having been clarified now from the appeal, or do you think the courts also need a little bit of narrowing as far as their discretionary powers there? That was probably the biggest victory in the San Mateo decision. And really, I think the significance is maybe even understated because traditionally courts have deferred to cities' judgment in local land use decisions across a variety of subjects. And really, one of the key differences of the Housing Accountability Act is it flips that around and says that courts need to decide cases and interpret the law to promote the development of housing rather than defer to city's judgment on denials. Um, And that sort of overturns a lot of prior precedent on how courts treat city judgments on administrative decisions. Much has, of course, already been written about why cities and towns resist the construction of new housing. But I'm wondering whether you've gained any additional insights into that question from your experience actually litigating these cases rather than simply arguing about housing policy in a vacuum. Do you see any merit at all to the hesitation that cities show toward new housing? And moreover, what are the legal arguments to the extent there are any that justify that anti-housing position? So as far as what's behind opposition to housing, in my opinion, I think a lot of it is driven by a base desire of people to see their neighborhood not change. This can take a number of forms. For homeowners, sometimes they feel that they have invested in a neighborhood and invested in a certain look or a certain feel or a certain level of density for the housing in that neighborhood and that they have an entitlement or they feel they have an entitlement that that won't change while they're living there. But it's not just homeowners. I think a lot of people can just feel that the neighborhood they grew up in, they don't want it to change. There's feelings of nostalgia around that. And those are real desires people have. I think where the part that really weaponizes that against housing is the process by which we set our housing policies. By having these public hearings, we really amplify the voices of people who care the most or sometimes interest groups that want to extract conditions out of housing development. And what we really miss are the voices of people who are totally fine with new housing development, but maybe don't want to show up to a public hearing that goes till 1 a.m. on a Tuesday night. 
And if you look at polling on these issues, I think generally you see that people are pretty open to new housing development. So I think it's a combination of the process and this sort of real strong desire that some people have to see their neighborhoods stay the same. As far as legal bases for this, I do think it just goes back to the traditional legal stance that courts have of not interfering with local government decision-making. And that deference is longstanding. There's a lot of cases, there's probably a case in every state that talks about the deference courts have for local government decisions. And just from a practical standpoint, I don't think a lot of judges really want to sift through zoning code and figure out these issues. They just would rather defer to the cities and sort of not interfere. In September 2021, the California governor's office announced that it would be creating a new agency known as the Housing Accountability Unit, which would be tasked with ensuring that local governments meet their state-mandated housing requirements. Already, this agency has made moves on certain regions and municipalities, in some cases even waiving the threat of litigation. This, to me, sounds an awful lot like the work that your organization is doing. So I'm wondering what you think about this new unit and whether you see any potential public-private cooperation between your organization and the state and agencies like that one. So we have already collaborated with them in a number of ways. And really, the State Department of Housing and Community Development has been involved in housing enforcement to some degree in the past with the housing element process I mentioned earlier. And we worked pretty closely with them on some guidance for local governments on accessory dwelling units, which was a law that went into effect in the beginning of 2020. And then outside of that, our San Mateo case that I mentioned earlier, a big help there was that the attorney general intervened on our behalf in that case once it got to appeal. So they were arguing alongside us in front of the course of appeal. And that was a big help. I think it was a big part of why that decision came out so strongly in our favor. In the future, I know both the attorney general and HCD are really putting more resources into this effort and probably expanding the areas of law that they're looking at. I think they're going to be inherently a bit more cautious than an organization like mine. So my hope there is that we can work together with them. I hope my organization can push them to act faster and be more aggressive on some of these issues. I do think they can be pretty effective with the cities that are actually trying to do the right thing by issuing guidance or consulting with city staff. There are a fair amount of cities in California that are really trying to comply. There are a lot that are not, but the ones that are really listen to what the state has to say. And interpreting some of the ambiguities in state law can really accelerate the implementation at the local level. And then hopefully we'll see the state bring its own lawsuits, which is the model that my organization established in the first place. So we'll see if that comes. It could be in the next year or so. Given that there are hundreds of municipalities in California, I would imagine that just an enormous number of much-needed housing developments are routinely rejected in violation of state law, but we just don't see it because there are hundreds of these small towns and cities. 
at the moment, your organization is still small and your resources are still limited. So how do you intend in the future to scale up litigation against non-compliant cities over the next few years? We are, we are very small currently. Our director of operations just left at the end of last year. And so just the two of us now, but we should be hiring in the next month or two. And my goals with our expansion are to first, I think the challenge, as you said, is just monitoring what goes on in city governments. Um, I think there are 560 local governments in the state. I would like to be able to get eyes on every housing development that goes through at least the high rent areas, areas where the housing crisis is really focused, like the Bay Area and LA, San Diego. So in order to do that, I hope to hire some people who have some planning background and know how to track all these projects and identify issues of state law. And that way we can tee up some new lawsuits. Right now, we rely a lot on the local UMB networks reporting stuff to us, which is great, but also misses a lot of cities and sometimes misses the cities that are really the worst violators of state law. So doing more proactive monitoring, I think, will allow us to reach more cities. And then the other part is I hope to eventually hire another lawyer to work the organization so that we can bring some of our litigation in-house. We usually use outside counsel right now to litigate. And if we can bring it in-house, it allows us to take more risks and do that work a bit more efficiently. I'm hopeful that we can accomplish all that in 2022. It is a big state. There's a lot that goes on. To your point about the amount of housing development that is actually disapproved, I think one of the challenges there is that the vast majority of projects that are disapproved never make it to a public hearing. Really it's a developer or even like a homeowner who wants to build an ADU that goes to city staff and city staff gives them some information or tells them, no, you can't do this. And sometimes their city staff is right, but a lot of times they're not really focused on state law when they make those determinations. So I think the challenge in kind of opening up the housing pipeline a little bit more is to set these precedents in court and then help those filter down so that you have city staff acting in a way that's more compliant with state law and people don't abandon those projects as easily early on. Looking ahead, are there any new avenues of litigation that you see as promising for the purposes of ensuring housing compliance among cities? Yeah, I think anytime there's a new state law that's enacted, we try to accelerate the use of that law as quickly as possible. That was the focus of some of our accessory dwelling unit work. This year, just five days ago now, the new SB Senate Bill 9 went into effect. And that's the bill that allows for a single family lot to be subdivided into two. And each lot is then allowed to have a duplex built on it. So it potentially allows for four units of housing on a, just any single family lot in the state. And I think it could be a very significant law if it were adopted in a widespread way, because 
there's a lot of suburbs in California with very large minimum lot sizes. And this allows you to divide those in two, at the very least, build two homes where there is one. And if you can build a duplex on each, it's four homes where there was one. So I think what I'm looking for there is looking for homeowners who are interested in doing this or people who own land who are interested in doing it so that we can support their application and then potentially sue if they get denied. That way we can get the courts to clarify any ambiguities in the law and hopefully endorse our view that it should be able to be done on the vast majority of single-family lots in the state. Dylan Casey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was really great talking. This has been City Speak with Max Masudafarkas, produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with audio production and music by Greg Gordon-Smith. Stay tuned for our next episode. <laughs>